Thank you, Christine, and good morning again, everyone. I um, I'm very, very glad to be with you. I'm going to make a quick disclaimer and then share from this wonderful text. Here's the disclaimer. Years ago, my wife and I were serving as missionaries in West Africa, tiny, tiny little country, the Gambia. I think you've probably even never heard of it. It's 500 kilometers long and 42 kilometers wide. There's only a million people there, 26 languages. It's a tiny place. It's a worm in the heart of Senegal. It has the most navigable river in the whole of West Africa. It's a very deep, a very wide river, and slave traders would take their ships inland and take men and women and children back to the Americas and Europe as slaves. It's an amazing place, horrible history. My wife and I had been there, and we came back to Adelaide. We're, we live in Melbourne now. We've lived everywhere. We're kind of from Adelaide. And, um, and, and I was at Bible college, and at the end of my three years at Bible college, the plan was to return to Africa. That was the deepest longing of my heart. But I also had to wrestle with the idea of potentially becoming a, a minister of a church. So, Lord, should I do pastoral work in Australia or cross-cultural mission work somewhere in the world? And I didn't know what to do. And uh, by the time you get to the end of your three years of Bible college, you've spent all your money and you've done all this study and you know you're not going to get a very well-paid job at the end of it. And now I'm desperate. What do I do? Pastoral work or mission work overseas? And one evening we were sitting in our own church. I wasn't preaching. The, 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 the minister was preaching. And it was about 400 people attend that evening service. And I turned to my eldest daughter, who at that time was only four years old, and I whispered to her during the sermon, I said, Sarah, do you think Daddy should become a pastor like Mr. Dunn? Mr. Dunn was preaching. Ian Dunn was preaching. It's a little embarrassing that a grown adult man would ask his four-year-old what he should do with his life. And she thought about it for a little while. She was a very reflective little girl. And then she looked up at me and she said, No, Dad, you're not that good. <laughs> so, and then I told her she was like a mother. And then we had another argument. I'll tell you that story. I'll tell you that story one day. But, uh, but, but here's what I have to tell you this morning. The Word of God is good. And I'm going to do something that carries significant risk this morning. I'm going to share with you from a text you know well, this Luke chapter 10 passage that Christine read so wonderfully for us. You already know this story, and the temptation is to switch off, because you've heard it all before. But this is the living word of God, and I encourage you to come to it with great expectations. You should expect God to speak, because it's the living word of God. And so... That's my warm encouragement to you. I know if some of you have been coming to church for years and you've perfected the art of the attentive stare and uh, you pretend you're listening but you're really in your happy place, I'm going to encourage you to listen and engage with the text because God is the God who still speaks. So let me share this text with you under three headings. Uh, the setting, the story, and the sequel. Here's the setting. There's an, a lawyer, an expert in the law. He's not a lawyer like a lawyer today. His expertise is in the law, but it's the law of Moses. So the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This lawyer's sphere of expertise, his study, is in the Pentateuch. And he hears that there's a new teacher in town, a new rabbi in town, named Jesus, who's going about doing incredible things. He's performing miracles. He's speaking wonderful words. 
I mean, even crowds gathered to hear this teacher speak. And the lawyer thinks to himself, I wonder if Jesus really knows his stuff. And so he comes to test him with questions. And the first question he asks is this, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you, do you hear the fallacy in the question? If you know the Bible, you know there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. It's a gift from God. It's all been done. It goes back 2,000 years to the cross as its culminating point of history. You can't do anything to win your way into heaven. I've tried a billion times to change myself and I can't do it and I can't change God. I can do nothing except accept this free gift of God. He's probably looking for some magnanimous deed that he can perform and if he can just do that thing, then he'll secure his way into eternal life with God in heaven. So that's the question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And how does Jesus respond? He responds like all the good teachers respond. And Jesus is the master teacher. What happens when you ask the teacher a question in front of the class at school or uni or in some other setting? You kind of ask the question and the teacher says, well, what do you think? I hated that when I was at school. I wouldn't have asked the question if I knew the answer. That's why I'm asking the question. But good teachers know that if they give the question back to the student, it makes them think and wrestle with the answer for themselves. So Jesus says, well, what's your reading of the law? You're the expert. This is your field of study. What's your solution to the problem? How do you answer your own question? And the lawyer is brilliant. Listen again to his answer. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer quotes from two texts, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 comes immediately after Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. I know, unless I'm a genius. Do you know what Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says? It's the creed of all Judaism. You can go into any synagogue, anywhere in the world, on any Sabbath, and you will hear Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. In other words... That great statement of fact, if it's true that there is only one God, then you'll love that one God with everything you are. If there is only one God, he deserves your undiluted allegiance. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. The reason I say that's a brilliant answer This lawyer takes all the laws of the Old Testament. You know there are more than 600 laws. He takes all the laws of the Old Testament and distills them into two primary commands. Love God totally. 
Love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's absolutely brilliant. E equals MC squared. Now that's genius. That's Albert Einstein. Energy equals mass times the square of the speed of light. This brilliant scientist takes all the laws of the the universe and distills them into one simple equation. E equals MC squared is brilliant. That's what the lawyer's doing here. He takes 600 plus laws, distills them into two simple commands, love God totally, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we know it's a brilliant answer because Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you'll live. That's all you have to do. Just love God totally. Just love your neighbor like you love yourself. And that could have been the end of the discourse. But this lawyer, just like any thinking person would today, is smitten to the core with conviction. Why? Because no one loves God totally. Not all the time. No one loves their neighbor as they love themselves. Not all the time. And so just like a lawyer today, he says, well, let's define the terms. Who is my neighbor? Notice he doesn't say anything about the first command, about loving God totally. Because anyone can say, you can say to me, well, I love God totally, Simon. Well, who am I to say you don't? But as soon as you say, well, I love my neighbor like I love myself, we have to ask, well, who is my neighbor? Because if my neighbor is a member of my family, well, absolutely. I love them like I love myself most of the time. If my neighbor is a a dear friend, I love them like I love myself occasionally. If my neighbor is a noble person, it's possible I'll give my life for that person. If If my neighbor is a stranger, it's possible that in a moment of heroism, I might give my life in exchange for theirs. Firefighters do that and military personnel do that and and kind of people do that. But if my neighbor is my enemy, someone I despise, well, I don't love them like I love myself. So you have to ask the question, who is my neighbor? This lawyer is a good thinker. And to answer that very important question, Jesus tells the story, story you know well, a story that takes place somewhere between Jerusalem and Jericho. Do you know that Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level and Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. This this part of the world forms a part of the Rift Valley. It's the deepest fault in the world. It runs all the way from the north of Galilee all the way down through Israel to the Dead Sea and into the heart of Africa. If you're standing at the Dead Sea, you are standing at the lowest place you can be on planet Earth. It's 25 kilometers from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the journey is quite undulating at first, a bit up and down the hills. But the last bit is this precipitous drop, very steep part of the road. And the surrounds are made up of a limestone that's soft. And over time, it weathers and crevices are formed, caves are formed. Great places for people to hide in and prey upon robbers. Uh, prey upon travelers and to rob them of everything they have. That's what happens in the story. 
Jesus tells the story of a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he falls into the hands of robbers. They, they beat him up, they strip him naked, and they leave him half dead on the side of the road. And the first person to come onto the scene is a priest. The text says that the priest happened to be going down the same road, saw the man, and passed by on the other side. Now, why would a priest do that? Why would a priest not stop and help a person in such obvious need? Well, we don't know for sure, but the direction in which he's traveling in the story Jesus tells gives us a clue. Notice it doesn't say the priest was traveling up the road. It says he was traveling down the road, down from Jerusalem, very high up there, to Jericho, way down there. Contrary to what most of us understand, the majority of the priests in those days didn't live in Jerusalem where the temple was. Most of them lived in outlying towns. A thousand years earlier, King David, you can read about this in the Old Testament, King David had divided the priests into 24 choruses or 24 groups and he assigned to them this responsibility. They were to travel to Jerusalem twice a year for one week at a time and perform their responsibilities in the temple and then go home. Well, I'd like a job like that. (laughs) Travel to Jerusalem, work for a week in the temple and then go home. Jericho was one of the famous towns for priests who had that responsibility. Now, the priest comes onto the scene, he sees the man and he passes by on the other side. Could you imagine what would have happened had he gone to the man with his injury, with his blood, with his nakedness? He has just come from the holiest place on planet Earth. The temple in Jerusalem was the place God presenced himself in a particular way in those days. It's all changed now. The Spirit of God has come in a different way. But back then, that was the holiest place in the world. And he goes from the holiest place in the world home, having touched a man with blood, and he goes home unclean. He would be the laughingstock of his whole community. Why did he pass by on the other side? He probably saw ceremonial defilement. That brings the Levite onto the scene. The second guy in this story. The text says that so too the Levite came to where the man was and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Now why did he do that? Well the text doesn't say. We speculate. Maybe he saw danger. Whoa, this is the most dangerous part of the road. And if they did that to him, imagine what they might do to me. They could be watching me now and he gets on his way. Maybe he saw an expense. It's going to cost me something to help this guy. Look, he's literally got nothing. Maybe he saw a bother. I'm too busy. I'm too, I'm maxed out. You should see my calendar. I can't fit one more thing in like half of us live most of the time. Whatever the reason, he passes by on the other side. And that brings the third passerby onto the scene. And he's a Samaritan. You know that the Jews and the Samaritans mutually despised each other. I mean, they were like sworn enemies. 
Do you know why the Jews hated the Samaritan? Samaritans? I'll give you one reason. They weren't full-blooded Jews. Jews hated them for that. I don't really understand this personally, but my wife's not a full-blooded anything either. She's kind of got this mixed African race, neither, neither black-skin African nor white-skin African, but something mixed. Her very birth certificate is stamped with the word colored. And she grew up during apartheid in South Africa and understood that you can't mix with that group, but you have more privileges than that group, but you can't do what they do, but you can do what they can't do. It was this strange mix of legal racism. The Jews hated the Samaritans because they weren't full-blooded Jews, but you know what really ticked them off? The Samaritans had their own temple in Shechem. They had their own Bible. It was called the Samaritan Pentateuch. They had their own priests. The Jews hated them for that. What about the temple in Jerusalem? And the feelings were reciprocal. The Samaritans hated the Jews. And here comes a Samaritan on Jewish territory, sees what the other two saw, and instead of passing by on the other side, goes to the man and tends to his needs. The scriptures in the story, the Lord Jesus says that, that, that the man takes some wine and pours them into his cuts because there would be antiseptic value in that and takes some oil and massages them into his bruises to soothe the, the, the aches and the pains and takes some bandages and fashion, or takes some material and fashions bandages and binds up his wounds. Where do you think he got the bandages from? They didn't carry a first aid kit in the back of the donkey. So we surmise he takes his own belongings and somehow fashions a bandage and binds up his wounds. And if that weren't enough, he picks the man up, puts him on his donkey, and the stranger rides while the owner of the donkey walks, takes him to an inn, some sort of hotel, nurses him for the whole night, don't know if you've ever done a, been awake all day and then worked a night shift somewhere. It's grueling. Nurses him all night and in the morning when danger is averted, he goes to the innkeeper and he says, here's two denarii. Denarius was about a day's wage. So here's a, a significant amount of money. This should cover the costs, but if it doesn't, when I'm back, I'll pay you what you say I owe you. And that's the end of the story, which brings us to the sequel. The sequel goes like this. The Lord Jesus, at the end of the story, says to the lawyer who asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of the robbers? Say, wait a minute, Jesus, you changed the question. That wasn't the lawyer's question. The lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? Well, the answer is that poor guy. There's your neighbor, go and help him. Jesus twists the question. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of the robbers? And you can tell this lawyer hates the Samaritans. He can't even say the word Samaritan and spit it out. He answers, the one who had mercy on him. 
And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Uh, There are many lessons we can draw from this um, famous, famous story. I'm going to share just three. Three take-homes. What difference does this whole story make to us? Well, here's three lessons. The first one goes like this. It's not enough to see a need. It's not enough to see a need. In the original language of the text, it reads, Edon, Edon, Edon. And when he saw him, and when he saw him, and when he saw him, all three saw exactly the same thing. The priest saw him and passed by on the other side. The Levite saw him and passed by on the other side. The Samaritan saw him and went to him and provided some care. It's not enough to see a need. I marvel at the hardness of my own heart. I see needs everywhere and respond to very few of them. By virtue of my role at Pioneers, I am constantly asked for stuff. Send us people. We need money. We need resources. Give more. Provide this. Offer that. Give your time. Give your people. I'm constantly asked to meet needs. Or or, or I drive through the city of Melbourne. I don't know what it's like here in Perth, but you can't drive through the city of Melbourne on a weekend without someone shaking a tin at the traffic lights asking for money. Good causes very often. They're not bad things to give your money to. But every single time, people are asking. I turn on the telly, sponsor this, do that, give to this, save this. I turn on my computer and my inbox is full of people making requests. And I cannot respond physically, emotionally, or financially to every need I see. But quite frankly, I could do more than I do. I see a need and I pass it by. Do you know some of the needs in the world? I'll rehearse just a couple of the big picture needs in the world. 7,000 unreached people groups in the world. So that's groups of people with the same language and culture and view of the world, worldview, way of doing life. 7,000 of those people groups are called unreached. It means they don't have sufficient Christians among them to reach others among them without help from the outside world. 3.5 billion people in the world are Muslim, Hindu or Buddhist. And 86% of them don't personally know a follower of Jesus. 30 million slaves in the world, 200 million orphans in the world. Half the world lives on less than $2 a day. 115 children become prostitutes every single hour. 63,000 people will die today in places where there are no churches. So there's the needs. It's not enough just to see a need. So here's the second lesson. What What you do depends on what you see. What you do depends on what you see. Why did the priest pass by on the other side? He probably saw ceremonial defilement. Why did the Levite pass by on the other side? He probably saw an expense. 
a nuisance, a hassle, danger. Why did the Samaritan stop and show mercy? Because he was a neighbor. What you do always depends on what you see. Um, there's a, one of our workers in, um, in Central Asia. So Central Asia is basically all the countries that end in Stan and Turkey, near enough. Turkey. One of the ladies who works with us there uh, is from here. Uh, not St. Matt's, but here in Perth. She's been there ten, about 10 years now. My wife and I were with her in one of these Stan countries where the bomb's going off constantly and people she knows have have died. Quite a brutal place. One of her responsibilities that she's giving herself to is reaching women in prison. They're all Muslim. It's very risky. When she was telling us about the risk associated with this ministry, I said, are you fearful that the prison guards will hear you speaking about Jesus and and punish the, the women listening? She said, no, I'm worried about the other prisoners punishing those who are listening. Like it's deadly and we were running a series of meetings in that place and a different night in each place because that's how you operate very discreetly and one night I was speaking about security and being wise as serpents and harmless as doves and when is it appropriate to withdraw from this place for a time because the heat's turned up and she started crying and I said to her what's wrong have I offended you and she said I'm begging you please don't make me leave this place and go back to Australia. These women in prison, they're my neighbors, and there's no one else on planet Earth telling them about Jesus. Only me. If you knew the place, if you can guess in your mind or if I told you the place I'm talking about, you would be praying, God, please don't send me there. And she's praying, God, please don't send me back to Perth. I've got to be here where no one else is telling these women about Jesus. What you do depends on what you see. She simply sees those neighbors of hers as women in desperate need. It's not enough to see a need. What you do depends on what you see. And here's the final principle. It's an even more basic principle. The third lesson. What you see depends on what you are. What you see depends on what you are. Because he was a neighbor. Which one of these three proved to be a neighbor, Jesus says? was the Samaritan, the one who showed mercy. Because he was a neighbor, he saw a neighbor. What you see always depends on what you are. We teach that principle to children. Um, If you have children, you'll know this little nursery rhyme or... You probably once were a child, so you'll probably know the nursery rhyme anyway. It goes like this. Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to see the Queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what saw you there? I saw a mouse under her chair. Do you know that little ditty? There's this cat lives here in Perth that catches a flight from Perth International Airport, probably on a Qantas Emirates co-chair via Dubai, Flies to London. It's a very clever cat. Flies to London, gets in one of those London taxi cabs, uh, not to visit the august Westminster Cathedral, Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's Cathedral, or go for a cruise on the Thames or visit the London Eye or the Tower of London to see the Crown Jewels. Where's the cat going? Well, it wants to see the Queen, so it's going to Buckingham Palace. 
and it gets out of the taxi, pays the fare. Again, it is very clever. And it's on one of those rare occasions when the queen invites cats to come and see her. So the doors open and there's the red carpet and the cat goes in and there's the queen in the throne room, sitting on her throne in all her regalia. The queen! And as the cat walks in, what does the cat see? A mouse. Not the queen. Why does it see a mouse? Because it's a cat. What you see depends on what you are. So I'm going to finish with a question. What do you see when you see people? The answer to that question is a reflection of your own heart. What you see depends on what you are. What do you see when you see someone who's not like you? Different skin color, different language group, different culture, different status in society, different bank balance, different vocation, someone other. What do you see when you see people across cultures? Someone rich, someone poor, a politician, a Jew, an atheist, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, someone not you. The answer to that question is a reflection of who you are. There's a lovely little passage in 2 Corinthians, it's uh, chapter 5. The Apostle Paul has been writing about the ministry of reconciliation because Christ has changed us, we share that message with others. And when he gets to verse 16, he says this. He says, so from, because of Jesus, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. In other words, we don't see people the way we used to see people because of Jesus, we see people the way Jesus sees people. And how does Jesus see people? Worth dying for. And that's mission giving your life to share the life-changing message of Jesus with people who are other, that they might know Jesus too. Let's pray. Father, we ask you, by your grace and power, because of your love for us and because of your love for peoples of the world, we ask you to take this well-known story and drive it deep into our hearts that it might make a difference in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.